What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush, Friday interview a dish. This is the uh, annual Chuck Goes to Max Fun Con and does some L.A. shows edition. And we're going to start this one off. I did. I was able to get three episodes in the can out there. And we're going to start this off with my good friend, Adam Pranica of the Friendly Fire podcast, of the Greatest Generation podcast, and of Seattle, Washington. Uh, Adam picked... A wonderful movie um, that is called Hard Eight. It is Paul Thomas Anderson's first film. We think uh, both agree that, and I think lovers of this film agree, it's probably underseen. Uh, this is before P.T. Anderson made a big big splash with uh, Magnolia and Boogie Nights and you know, really became one of the uh, most revered auteurs in Hollywood. But all of it's here in Hard Eight, everyone, uh, including the beginnings of his acting company that he started to work with on many other films. Uh, really, really good movie. Uh, Adam is an awesome guy. I met Adam, I think, at the, one of the John Hodgman Chateau Marmont hangs, pre-Max FunCon, uh, quite a few years ago. And, uh, you know, Adam's just a great guy. He's he's quiet, and you got to spend some time with him to get to know him. But once he trusts you, he opens up a bit, and it turns out is hysterical. I always call him the... Uh, the secret weapon of the Friendly Fire podcast, because Adam picks and chooses his times to jump in, and when he does, it's very funny, which is one of my favorite kinds. He's not a blowhard, everybody, like me. 
Uh, so here we go with Adam Pranica on Hard Eight. So uh, I'm going to hit the are. button just and just like get some of this. Say what? I feel like this might be something that you want. I'll list pre-roll. No, no, no. You're recording, right? I'm recording now. Oh, you weren't getting that before. So what are we drinking? <laughs> this is a this is a Morgan's cup. And what's in it? This is gin. Okay. And cucumbers. Okay, I taste and, that. And lime. A little light on. And the lime, a little but... bit of simple syrup. Okay. You want to muddle all of those together mm-hmm. and give it a stir and mm-hmm. throw some cracked pepper and salt on top. Oh, nice. You need to know when to say when on that pepper, Chuck. Uh, I, I'm a black pepper guy. Yeah? So it's... you just have the guy at your table, like, for 20 minutes yeah. cranking that thing? <laughs> cranking that, that long phallus yeah. over my table. Yeah, it's a real power move, right? <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they always do look like just big giant dicks. They do. <laughs> they don't even try to obscure nope. the phallus. Nope. <laughs> Dress it up. Yeah. Uh, this is delicious. Thank you. You're I welcome. Think it's just what I needed. Yeah. I was, I'm feeling tired. It's uh, a little pick me up. Yeah, and this is this is working well. I can tell already. That's good. Uh, how did you? How's the class go? Good. Great. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of you know what we got that I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. was the person in the class who was like, I just drink red wine. Right. I don't drink cocktails. Yeah, so everyone, you know, here at Max MaxFunCon, uh, there are activity sessions during the day. There are two of them, uh, morning session and afternoon session. The afternoon session, every year, John Hodgman and I do our trivia, pub trivia. And at the same time, you and Ben Harrison, also with Friendly Fire, did a home bar class. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, how to stock and use a home bar for social situations. Nice, and it went well? It really did. That's yeah, every, everyone was really game. Cool. Yeah, like the main takeaway is don't try to convince someone to like something just because you like it. Yeah, what is, like, since people are listening to this, give me your top three home bar suggestions and tips. Well, I think, like, starting with that, I think, would be uh, if you have a friend, like, I have a friend who doesn't like agave spirits, like... Sure. This is a very close friend of mine who doesn't drink tequila. I'm not going to try to make him a tequila cocktail right. to try to get him on my side. <clears throat> sure. But you really got to try this one. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's that's no good. Why even? Yeah. Uh, that would be probably tip number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, tip number two, I would say, is to pre prepare as much as possible. And by that, I mean... So if like, you're having a party. If you're having people over, you should probably have your prep done so that you're not spending your first hour cutting limes right. and making simple syrup. Right. And ideally, and I know you've run into this at Max FunCon, like <coughs> there are real live bartenders at Max FunCon who That's have right. batch cocktailed everything out mm-hmm. so that you're not getting a huge lineup when you want something to drink. Right. They're ready to to dose things out for you and send you on your way. All right. So, yeah, Tip that, number two. That's two. And what's number three? Shoot. What is tip number three? Or maybe for tip number three, what would be like a solid suggestion of things to have on hand for if you just want to have a cocktail, you know, party, um, knowing that you can't cover all the bases and make yeah. every drink under the sun, what, what's a solid like lineup of liquors and then accompaniments? You know, like you and I are men of a certain age. Okay. 
And I feel like we're throwing fewer and fewer ragers in uh, our sure, life. Sure, sure. I feel like when you've got like four to six close friends, mm-hmm. you could make that into a fun glassware situation. Okay. And my wife has been great at like collecting interesting glasses from uh-huh. bars that go out of business and stuff. Oh, cool. I think, I think like if you have a cocktail that a friend has made you mm-hmm. in a glass that is unusual... That feels really good, and I think that makes uh, that makes it an occasion. Okay, in a so fun break way. out some cool glasses. Yeah, break out the fu- like the way that your parents or grandparents hoarded the china. Right. <laughs> like use the china yeah. is is the lesson I think. Like okay. don't just don't just stash it away. Uh, break it out for your good friends. All right, that's great. Yeah. What's your background? Where are you from? <laughs> Uh, I live in Seattle at the moment. I was born in Southern California. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, moved away fairly early in my life. I barely remember it. Mm-hmm. Uh, moved across country to Virginia Beach. Okay. Uh, where my dad uh, worked in video production. Oh, And cool. then uh, moved us cross country again to Seattle. Uh-huh. Uh, also for my dad's video production. What kind of video production? Like? Corporate. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they had that back then. They did. He was probably pioneering with the big uh, camera that you put on your shoulder with the bag that was oh, containing yeah. the tapes on the other shoulder. Yeah. 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 The the large format. Right. <laughs> beta cam. Yeah. So is that how you got into filmmaking? Is through pops? Um, I think my father and I have very different levels of engagement in video and film. Okay. And. By that, I mean, like, I think what inspired me about my dad's work is that he made it an example of something you can make a career out of, Mm -hmm. but you rarely ever saw the art or the joy in it. Um, Like, I think... it was corporate video. I worked in corporate video for many years, and it is a conflict between you and your client to, like... To feel good about the creative. Mm-hmm. And I think you're rarely satisfied with how that shakes out because ultimately you're, uh, I mean, you're not making that decision. You're serving your client. Right. And that can, over a number of years, like that adds up. Yeah. That adds away. up into, like, I think something that was super instructive about my relationship to my dad happened when I was in college and, uh, which I don't know about you, but I saw maybe the most amount of films I've ever seen in those four years of college. I was constantly going to the movies and this was yeah. between 97 and 2001, 2002, which was a really interesting time in movies. Yeah. And, I don't remember the movie I went to see with my dad. My dad had come to visit me at school, and we went out to see a movie, and I was just, I was excitedly talking his ear off about this film that we were going to see. Right. And on and on, I would go about, like, this is going to be great. This is by a filmmaker I love. This is why this is important. Yeah. And he stopped me, and he said, uh, it's just a movie. Oh, man. And it totally shut me down. Yeah. And I think that was very emblematic of what a corporate filmmaker gets beaten into. Right. I want to believe that there was joy in him and Uh creativity in him when he, like, worked on that craft. Yeah. But by the end of it, by the end of her career, 
I think you might be turned into a person for whom it is just a movie. And yeah. I never wanted to lose that kind of magic. Right. I never wanted to lose that relationship mm-hmm. with film. And I've tried my hardest to, to keep it, to, to defend it. Now, do you still do corporate video or like, I did what's, for, what's your main line of filmmaking at this point? Well, I did for a long time, but uh-huh. uh, the podcast projects that I do have, have like elbowed into my life and my time in such a way that... Are you full-time podcasting now? I am. Oh, dude, congratulations. Yeah. That's great. It's been a big year for me. Yeah, that's fucking great. So uh, I'm one of the hosts of Greatest Gen, which is a Star Trek podcast. Yeah, how did generation? Uh, how did that start? What was the seed of, as as John Roderick calls your Star Trek show? Yeah, <laughs> uh, John introduced me and Ben, and and you knew John through Seattle. I've known John for almost twenty years. Wow, and I am not an old man. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you were just, just a through kid. just through the Seattle music scene. Uh huh. And I was dabbling in independent film for a long time. Uh-huh. And uh, if anyone has ever met John Roderick before, I think you would be captivated by the idea of a film about him. Sure. And that was a feeling that I had when I first met him. Really? It's like, and I want to make a, a documentary about you? That's how I felt. And wow. uh, I actually began shooting that film for a really? long time and, and worked on it for many years. And... Uh, it's, I think a lot of documentary filmmakers, lot, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that it has not been released and no one has ever seen it is a sign of a couple of things. I think in the late 90s and the, and the early and mid 2000s, there was such a sea change in the technology used to make independent film yeah. that most people who had shot on the industry standard digital video camera systems were right. happy with how things went. And by the time 2003, 2004 rolled around, all of a sudden you're looking really bad right. on screen. And I knew... For shooting what, like mini DV? Yeah. 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 And so as time went on and the story went on, I became less and less satisfied with how things were looking. And Yeah, when technology is outpacing your film, then you're... you're it's hard. Yeah, it's tough. It's hard, especially because a documentary asks a lot of you emotionally and with your time. Like it is right. obviously unpaid work. Sure. And if what you're looking at is not living up to your own internal expectations, yeah, it's hard to reconcile. And so when it came time to like near a assembly, I just wasn't really happy with the film and I didn't have an ending that I like. And I am such a self-editor that I finally reached a point where I knew I wasn't going to put it out. Right. Maybe there will be a time where that happens, where all of a sudden there's like a nostalgia for for DV. Right. And it won't look so weird. Right. But for right now, it's not in that place. Gotcha. And so what that turned into was a really enriching and fun friendship with our friend John Roderick. Right. And it's also turned into a podcast project called Friendly Fire, which we do. Right. And then he introduced you to Ben. And he did. how did how did Greatest Gen? Where was that seed? You guys aren't big Star Trek guys even, are you? Uh we are. That you that are that started as a you know, John looked at me and he looked at Ben and was like, You guys should be friends uh-huh. because we're dorks. Yeah. 
And he said, uh, you should hang out. And so Ben was up in Seattle for a John Roderick show that mm-hmm. I was at. And after the show, we hung out afterwards and hit it off. That's great. Got along great. And uh, it was the start of a great friendship. And that friendship revealed a mutual admiration for a television show that we grew up watching. Oh, okay. So you were really into it. We were. Yeah, okay. this was not This was not a thing we had to study or fake or... Gotcha. Or, yeah, this was, this totally became something organic. And And really kind of blew up, right? It did. Yeah, it was something that I never thought anyone would listen to. Uh Uh-huh. It's so cool. And, yeah, it made the case for itself in that way, in a really great way, because when you're a freelancer, and you are a freelance video producer especially, Uh uh, there are good times and there are really thin times. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's scary. And uh, the podcast yeah, made a case for game. itself in a number of ways. One of them is that like we're listener supported and it's nice to like have a wellspring <laughs> of yeah. people who love your work and support you through it. That's cool. Yeah. And now it's to the point where you guys are going out on tour and you do rooms like three, four hundred people. Yeah. Which is amazing. It is incredible. I never thought that, that we would be there or that I would be there. Yeah. It's so I hate fun. Uh, that I missed you guys in Atlanta last time. Yeah. It's terrible timing. I was, I think, doing a show of my own in another city. Or I was yeah. out of town at the very least. I just can't remember. Yeah, we would have loved for show. you to have been there. Uh, like Atlanta is one of those places. Like there are many cities in the country that have a 300 to 400 cap room. Atlanta doesn't. Atlanta has a bar. Yeah. With something Where'd close. You Earl? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was great. It's so much fun. Yeah. Atlanta's, it's weird. We don't have. Um, I guess there's the uh, SCAD show theater for Savannah College of Art and Design, which is about 300, but it's not like a, like you got to know that there's a show there that you want to go see. It's not like a, a prominent venue that books like three or four or five times a week. Yeah. It's very sporadic. So yeah, Atlanta weirdly has a dearth of sort of those, you know, small to mid-sized venues. I wish I spent more time there. Honestly, yeah. we just cool. sort of barnstormed in and then took sure. off. But one of these days, we'll do a show that you can attend, and then we can have some quality Atlanta hangs. Yes, that would absolutely. Be great. Uh, and then Friendly Fire was born. Geez, I remember two Max Fun Cons ago. You guys, I think you were there for the pitch. Yeah, you guys said it, or, or had already recorded a pilot, or was it the pitch? I think two years ago, we were still trying to pitch John on the idea. Okay. Was there a lot of arm twisting there? (laughs) At that point, I think the pitch was very Roderick-centric, which was like, let's hear John talk. Let's hear John tell war stories and tell us about old war movies. And what it is now is not that. Yeah, It feels like all three of us... Uh, bring something very different to that table for sure it's a great dynamic because john is a uh is really a brilliant historian like really knows his shit to like a staggering degree yeah and uh he's always good to rely on for historical uh framework yeah on your show but you do each bring something different but because like generation for that yeah like we are we are of different ages yeah. and i forget a lot that that ben is younger than me uh, by many years ben? i think ben is five years younger than me how old are you 40 okay so yeah Ben's and john 35. is 50 yeah so 35 40 and 50. so we really approach it from different yeah 
positions. Well, and he plays the role of old curmudgeon Gen Xer. Yeah. He he revels he, in that. He is the show's grouch, <laughs> yeah. which is great and welcome. Yeah, yeah. Because I think, like, I'm sure you've run into this. Like, there is a there's an instinct to say that everything is great. Right. And every film should get an award. Right. And everyone's really trying hard to make something good. Uh-huh. And John really disabuses us both of that yeah. come review time. And that's really welcome. It's nice to get that that mix. Yeah, yeah. I love it, man. I mean, it's one of, geez, uh, one of three or four shows that I'm uh, always up to date on. Wow. That I listen to within a couple of days of release. I don't, I listen to... Uh, all the episodes, and even if I don't know the film, because some people can't listen to their friends' podcasts. I've heard people say that. Yeah, I'm the opposite. Yeah. I love it because I feel like I'm hanging out with my pals. I'm with you. So yeah, I, I listen to Judge way. John Hodgman and Jesse because yeah. that show is as close as it's going to get to hanging out with those guys. Agreed. And same with you guys. Like you're yourself on the show. Yeah. I'm going to start listening to Greatest Gen. I've never oh, seen an great. episode of Star Trek. Yeah. But I'm going to start diving in there. That's I'm a sure very I'll have fun with it. That's a very special person that we meet after a show that says uh, <laughs> I've never watched any of the movies right, or any of the shows. <laughs> yeah, I just like hearing some friends talk. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, I certainly don't like. A lot of times, I have seen the war film, but I'm definitely not the guy who hears what movie you're going to talk about, and if I haven't seen it, go out and watch it before I listen. Right. That kind of participation is great. I'm sure when people do that. And same with Movie Crush. I'm yeah. sure there are people I try to say ahead of time what movie. And I think if people go out and watch it beforehand, if they haven't seen it, that's great. But I, th- I definitely think you can still get out of a lot out of a smart, fun conversation between people. It's really about expectations, right? I think a lot of people approach the idea of a, of a war movie podcast and they think it's going to be a certain way. Right. And it is really like I'm shocked every week at how funny the show is. Yeah. Week in and week out. Yeah, even for a film like Come and See. Yeah. And you guys joked about like, geez, how are we going to even do this episode? Because that film is so, you know, devastating. Think, but you, it was still a funny episode. You need to protect yourself yeah. somehow. And that's the way I've always done it. Like, I've always laughed my way through the hardest parts <laughs> of my life. Right. Yeah. The sad clown. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always say you're the secret weapon on Friendly Fire. Oh, that that's nice of you to say. Because you pick your moments, and uh, yeah. I don't know. I think they're always the funniest bits. <laughs> Have you ever done a show, like, uh, I find it's very different to go from Greatest Gen, which is a two-host show, to Friendly Fire, which is a three-host show. For you? It's yeah, uh-huh. like, it, uh, it feels very different to me, and a lot, like, it allows me to be... Uh, more strategic and yeah. cutting with what I say. Right. When it's just two people, I mean, it's a yeah, you like you really weight. share the weight. Yeah, for differently. sure. Well, I, I will say that the few times I've done uh, a movie crush with two other people, it's been a little tougher. Yeah. Um, yet when we do our friendly fire thing with all four of us, I like have no problem with that. It feels great. And there are visual cues. We're all in the room together. Yeah. So there's sort of that thing that happens where you're sort of looking around like, all right, I can see Adam's about to talk next. I like this tradition that yeah. we're doing of we doing do a year. movie crush crossover. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you And I like that we're barefoot right now. <laughs> like just to paint a picture for the listener. <laughs> yeah, we're in my cabin. Yeah. Uh, barefoot. Yeah. Drinking gin. 
Feels nice. Uh, I'm still a little stoned mm. from earlier. Fun. <laughs> I, re- I did not smoke anymore before this, although I might. Yeah. You never know. We could do whatever we want here. It's your show. Here. That's what's happening here at, yeah. at Lake Arrowhead. Yeah. One of the most... John very, and I were talking this morning. It's so fucking beautiful here. Really and is. I've been here so many years, and sometimes I forget to just sort of stop and look around at how gorgeous this spot is. It is amazing. Really Especially lovely. like when you start at the bottom of the mountain and you can barely see the top of it for yeah. smog. Yeah, yeah. You get up here, you get above it. Uh-huh. It's paradise. Yeah, if you guys ever get a chance to go to Lake Arrowhead, California, go, go, go. Agreed. Come to Max FunCon. Yeah, come to Max Fun. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. So you agreed sort of just at, off the top of my head here, I was like, let's do a filmmaker series because you picked P.T. Anderson's first movie, Hard Eight, after struggling with whether or not to go with Boogie Nights. Yeah. And you thought, well, this one's a little underseen, so maybe we can shine a light on it. Yeah. And I was like, well, let's just do a filmmaker series because you're one of the few people I feel like I can record remotely with and have it be fine. Right. Um, so that's what we're going to do. I can hold up my end of the bargain. And I think we should just go in order. Okay. Uh, most all the movie um, filmmaker series, I'm kind of jumping around, but since we're starting with Hard Eight, I, I say we just go in order. That's appropriate. Yeah, I would. Lo- I would love that. Yeah, and he's he's one of your one of your favorites, right? He so. really is. If if not one of like he's the favorite. Yeah, I think he's great. So let's talk about him for a minute, just in general. Um, and through the lens of Hard Eight, I guess like to to come out onto the scene with such a ambitious and not ambitious that this was some big movie, but 
it does not smack of a first film or an indie film, and it was both. Yeah. It feels he he was always ambitious with his camera work yeah. and with his Scorsese inspired uh, use of the dolly and moving the camera around. Yeah. He wasn't like, all right, let's just lock it down on sticks. Like like Wes Anderson's first film with Bottle Rocket, let's say. He was very brave, yeah. I would say, like from jump, like fully formed. As a kid, like how old was he when he directed this? Like in his 20s. He had to be his mid-20s. Yeah. yeah. Which is nuts. Yeah, and I like, like one of the stories about the production of this film is that like he fought a studio system for his cut. <clears throat> Wow. Like, like he made a he made a two and a half hour assembly, and Reicher was like, "Fuck that, yeah. no!" And then he was like, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna submit to Khan, and I'm gonna give them my cut." And then Khan was and the one no who just sort of like that. blessed the film yeah. and the director's cut of it. And then what's a studio gonna do? Right. And I love the, the like that the audacity of, of a filmmaker to be like to be like that. Yeah. Like I'm that confident in my vision. Yeah, and an auteur from the beginning, too. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, one of my favorite things to do is see first films of great filmmakers yeah. and see if you can see that DNA and that genius. And sometimes you can't. Yeah. Most of the times you can, um, especially if it's, uh, well, it's got to be a movie of a certain size. Like, you see the DNA in a Wes Anderson's Bottle Rocket. Right. But he clearly didn't have the resources he needed to play in the world that he really wanted to play in. Look, I love Wes Anderson as much as anyone. Yeah. But I never watch Bottle Rocket. I love Bottle Rocket. I, I'm not saying that I don't. Yeah. But in terms of rewatchability, I think that matters a lot. Yeah. And I rewatch Heart Eight quite a bit. Yeah. So this film, the original title was Sydney. Yeah. Uh, which I'm sure you knew. Um, and it stars uh, Philip Baker Hall. Who and uh, the sacks under his eyes? Yeah, <laughs> which which gets second billing. Don't you just want to like curl up under one of oh, his eyes man. and go go it's take a so nap? Great. Yeah. Well, the other thing that impressed me at this movie is like, uh, the 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 presence of mind as a twenty five or year old or whatever to cast a Philip Baker Hall. Yeah. Um, and for it's a like, Philip Baker Hall to be game yeah, for punk totally, kid Paul Thomas Anderson. Totally. Like, and to allow himself to be directed yeah, is great. Yeah, yeah. And not just cast him, though, but like to hitch his wagon to him yeah, and be like, you're going to be in Magnolia. You're going to yeah. be in Boogie Nights. Like, he was a kid and he knew. Yeah. Like, I didn't even know who Philip Baker Hall was before this, I don't think. Yeah. And he clearly like outside of Seinfeld or whatever. But yeah, yeah like you and me both. Great Seinfeld role. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he he was the uh, the library cop, right? He was. In Seinfeld. <laughs> I love that Paul Thomas Anderson had the instinct to create a, a team of players. Yes. Like the Wes Anderson players, for yeah, example. Yeah, like, yeah. And he would take these actors with him uh-huh. on throughout his career yeah that's one of my favorite things and i think when that doesn't happen i think it it a lot of times means that the director doesn't have a uh i don't know want to say camaraderie but sometimes it might be even combative and you just cycle through actors i, I really love it when a director has a, a company 
Yeah, the, I agree. The players that they take along for the ride. It makes me feel good about that director and their ability to cultivate a relationship yeah. because you get a lot of like uh, you get a lot of rep- of directors with reputations for being real ball breakers mm-hmm. who are real my way or the highway types <laughs> like the David O. Sullivan reputation of like right. of like being people who just cream their actors yeah and I love the idea of someone who can get great performances while also being a great hang right. And that's P.T. Anderson. Yeah, you would think. I like, mean, I would. I would think, and you and you hear these actors talk about him in such a way that, like, right. it's a whenever, wherever situation. Yeah, and so in this case, he has Philip Baker Hall. He had Philip Seymour Hoffman. We'll get to his role in a bit. Um, who he used again? John C. Riley, which he used again and again. Uh, Melora Walters is even at the very end of this. Yeah, hardly recognizable. As the the sex worker. Who is like the anchor of Magnolia. Yeah, anchor of Magnolia and also in Boogie Nights. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's... Did he use Gwyneth again? I don't think so, did he? No. 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 And Gwyneth Paltrow is so great in this movie. She really is. Like something has happened to her her. reputation lately. Totally agreed. But you watch her in this film and she is really spectacular. Yeah. You kind of forget like, oh, wow, she she was a really good actor. Yeah. Um, And for better or for worse, say whatever you want to about her now and her reputation as a pain in the ass or just kind of a bougie. She has this in her. Rich housewife. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, for her to like, when she was younger, she had some really great roles. Yeah, agreed. And this is for sure one of them. Yeah, and this this era is like peak Paltrow, right? Yeah. Like she was working a lot, taking a lot of risks with her career. Yep. Doing interesting things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the movie begins with uh, what I call the drone dong. Uh, that sound. Yeah. That boom. Clementine's bong. dirge. Boom, yeah. bong. Which comes back in Boogie Nights. Yeah, exactly. During... Uh, which scene is it in the Boogie Nights? Is it? It's when Dirk uh, gets cross, into the into the pickup truck yeah, in the parking lot, and he cross cuts that whole. Yeah. Oh God, I can't wait to talk about Boogie Nights. Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this this film opens with that effect, and uh, it's just such a just an eerie tone setter that I guess he came up with. Is that his creation? Do you know? Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to start this film with uh, Hard Eight, a film by Paul Thomas Anderson, smash into movie. And one of its producers said, I get producer credit before the title, like... Oh, right. And, like, made that happen. Really? Yeah. So that's unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. So he didn't have the clout at that point, even, of course. Yeah, I mean, he's... uh, This is his first film. He doesn't get to make that call. Do you know what the budget was for this? I don't. I have a feeling you'll tell me. No, I don't even know. I thought I thought you would have looked that up. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, we'll look it up. I bet I bet it was, um, I bet it was not as much as you think, because it's pretty contained. What I read was that he used some Boogie Nights money on this to finish it. Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting? So he had not finished this film when he started pre-production and got a green light for Boogie Nights? I mean, he had been seen as a wunderkind, like, early on. Yeah, rightfully. And had already, like, cemented a deal 
that would take him past this. Gotcha. So I'm reading $3 million budget, okay. and unfortunately, right. sadly, a $222,000 box office. So a criminally yeah. underseen film. Yeah. And like I sort of understand because uh, it's a film that's never put out in that's never been put out on, on Blu-ray, yeah. even though Paul Thomas Anderson has said this is something that he's wanted to do. Right. And it's not a film that's commented on very often by PTA. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's out of any sort of shame because I think it's a great film. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think I would never want to speak for him, but I think the conflicts around the film and his cut versus a studio versus a title that he wanted that he didn't get. Right. It's got to be hard to look back on this and think about all the things that you wanted it to be and yeah. and weren't. Yeah, because it's interesting. The title originally going to be Sydney. Like, even just calling it that, it it's uh, a very seventies filmmaking thing. Yeah, to title the movie after just a character, yeah. like Norma Ray or uh, uh, oh, I guess Alice doesn't live here anymore. It was longer than that, but Shaft. Yeah. <laughs> But like Sydney is, it's a character study about this man yeah. is really what the film is. Yeah. And they call it Heart Eight, which is fine. That's a good title in the end. I get it. It's snappy. But Sydney, it's about Philip Baker Hall. It's about this mysterious guy. Yeah. Who you get little bits of information about him doled out throughout the film until you get a complete picture only in the very end. Yeah. About who this guy is. Uh, you know, he has children. Yeah. Which was a... I think something I'd forgotten even, because they don't linger on that. And there's no. not like, oh, well, aren't you in touch? Or what What happened? Was there a falling out? He just very briefly mentions that he has two kids Yeah, that he's really not in touch with anymore. This is such an amazing film for Philip Baker Hall. He is uniquely able to so good. connote a feeling of like paternal love yeah. and distance, paternal distance at the same time. Yeah. That's that's magical, and John C. Riley is uniquely suited to being like kind of a dopey son. Yeah, a like a son who needs a father. <clears throat> yeah, and this is a through line. This is a leitmotif that you get in a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson films, like yeah. the family that you make. It's Burt versus, Reynolds and and Dirk Diggler. Yeah, the same thing versus the family that you're born with. Uh huh. And this is a this is something that's been interesting to me for my entire life. Like yeah. I love the idea of building close relationships with with my friends right. that feel like families. Yeah, same. Yeah, that's really cool. And 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 going back and watching this again, I think it hadn't occurred to me that through line through his movies. Yeah. Um and I guess things get a little well, actually come to think of it like there will be blood. There's a lot of weird paternal Yeah. Uh, yeah, these are not well smooth, well-run families yeah, where everyone's well, happy <laughs> ever. Yeah. yeah and maybe that's the thing that, that makes them feel the most familial, right? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, John C. Riley in this movie is so great. Yeah. And I think it's very easy to take him for granted as an actor. Agreed. Because he just seems like he can go out there and be that goof, <clears throat> like in Step Brothers or... Even in Boogie Nights, he was sort of yeah. a goof and silly. He makes me cry in Magnolia because he is such a dope in that film. But oh, when he God. loses his gun, yeah, man, like I can't like that scene really devastates me. Yeah, he really gets to the heart of 
someone who wants to be good and yeah. wants to be seen as capable yeah and just can't quite make it yeah yeah and especially in this movie man he's yeah. just like and, and you wonder what's going on with him and why he was chosen of course we will we'll talk about why later on yeah. but uh he's just such a sad like he has no shot on his own what I like about like this movie is successful in some ways that so other so many other films aren't in that you sometimes get reflected character development yeah. with someone and the John C. Riley character doesn't tell his own story very much in this film. Right. It is Philip Baker Hall's <clears throat> reflection of him uh-huh. that does. It is Clementine telling Philip Baker Hall about yeah. how he is worshipped by him. Right. In a way the John C. Riley character is kind of a cipher. Yeah. And it, he's being described by these other characters. But I think one of the magic tricks of this film <laughs> is that first scene. I don't know. How much of a gambler are you, would you say? Do you enjoy gambling in casinos or playing a card game? Yeah, sure. I I always have been. Yeah. And that scene is utterly intoxicating oh, yeah, in the casino yeah. where Sydney teaches the John C. Riley character how to turn ships into cash. Yeah, like the most basic grift. Yeah. Is is what he teaches him. The yeah. dumbest, lowest level grift. Yeah. And he teaches him this whole thing and he works on this thing all night. And I never realized until I saw it again the other day. Uh the payoff of that is He's in this shitty hotel room. Yeah. It's not, yeah, like like it's not even a reward. Suite. Yeah. It's just like a place for him to sleep that because night. Because the film jumps in time and then you see what a really nice suite looks like later exactly. on, which still not great. Right. But at first it's just like, yeah, you do all this work, cashing yeah. in these chips with this grift and you just get like a fucking double two queen beds and like a few pay-per-view movies on the house. You know what low key my favorite part of that? of the first third of the film is, is when John C. Riley goes in for the shave in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. And the bathroom attendant is like, yeah. looking good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's not <laughs> saccharine or bullshit or yeah. whatever. It's just two grown men in a bathroom yeah. commenting on the differences a shave can can make. Yeah, and well, and he puts up a bit of a fight with uh, Philip Baker Hall with Sydney. He goes like, yeah. oh, I was going to try and grow a beard. That is, and he's just, that is every dope yeah. in college I've ever known. <laughs> like, why do you look like that? You look like shit. Yeah. 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 I've got to work on my beard. But Philip Baker Hall, he just never, he never entertains that for a second. There's no debate. He's just like, like I said, go in the bathroom, clean yourself up. People make a big deal about like how much fun it is to have Mr. T as your GPS but like, if there's ever a time to make Philip Baker Hall oh, God. the voice of your AI, yeah, that would be. So I would great. obey every command yeah. <laughs> from that voice. And how could you not? And yeah. that's great casting, right? Because John C. Riley is malleable mm-hmm. and he's listening, mm-hmm. but also there's an authority to Philip Baker Hall that yeah. is crucial to this film working. There is, and you really, I think that's so magnified in the scene where we first meet uh, Jimmy, yeah, the Samuel Jackson character, because uh, what's what's uh, is it? Was John C. Riley's name in the movie? Is it John? I think it's John. I think it is John. He brings Jimmy around, I think, to kind of uh, kind of impress Sydney, yeah. but he quickly realizes like that he's made a mistake. And that Jimmy is crass for Sydney. 
doesn't doesn't that sound familiar though? Like, haven't you? Like when I have introduced a friend to another friend and you're like, oh shit, I never should have done this. Yeah. And you're thinking like, oh, you're going to love each other. Yeah. It's like, oh boy. There is such a <laughs> soft power in Sydney in that moment. Yeah. Like that whole, I love that it was never forgotten when, when, uh, when Philip Baker Hall like asks if Jimmy works in the parking lot. Yeah. That is such a low key, massive cut on a person. Yeah. When Jimmy says he works security, yeah, 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 and, and he's uh, like, Sydney's no, like, I work inside the casino, and like I'm an inside guy. Jimmy says it then, and he says it later when he is the most angry. Yeah, he does. He re- he re- reiterates that. Yeah, um, and I love just how frank Sydney is. There's that one great line when John C. Riley goes, "Yeah, Jimmy, he thinks he doesn't like him." He goes, "I don't." Yeah. <laughs> I even with my closest friends, I have a hard time being that honest about mutual friends. Oh, you yeah. know, Sydney's nothing but honest. It is. It's amazing. He's yeah. he's utterly honest, but he has so much to hide at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, what a like. Can you imagine being twenty five years old and making this film? It's it's such a mature. It's. Utterly film. confident. Yeah. And it shows an awareness of adult relationships that seems impossible as a, like, <clears throat> yeah. I was in, I was and remain an idiot about relationships to people, uh-huh. but as a 25 year old, um, I cannot geez. imagine having the, the sophistication enough to write parts like this. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would have been, I wasn't even writing scripts back then, but. At 25, would have been like, oh, I guess I'll write a movie about like two guys in school, like they can't get laid or something like that. Yeah. It'll be funny. Yeah. And like, I would have not have had the sophistication. I still don't to write something this good. That soft power that Sydney has is, yeah. I think about it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a great character. And the way he loves Clementine yeah. is so unique. Like, I feel like a lot of movies would fuck this up, right? Uh-huh. Like, they would unintentionally make Sydney creepy yep. with Clementine especially. Yeah. And there is never a moment where that's on the table up to and especially when Clementine is in, in John's bed. Yeah. And Clementine asks Sydney yeah. if he wants Would to you... fuck her. Yep. That scene also could turn bad. And mm-hmm. not because Sydney would accept such an offer, but like Sydney's reaction to that could be yeah. so much worse. And because it's so paternal and loving, yeah. there's so much love in him for these broken characters. Yeah. It's really special what he's able to pull off, and it's a sophistication that someone of Paul Thomas Anderson's age at the time seems like magic. Yeah, and you don't know what's going on. Like, you know that he has right. a son and a daughter yeah. that he is not in touch with because there's a menace to him and you're probably thinking, well, he probably has done something bad in his life and we don't know it yet. And then he gets these surrogate children that he really is trying to make amends and do right by so clearly from the very beginning, he's trying to take care of Clementine. He says things very specifically like, I'm giving you all that I have. Yes. Everything that I have, I'm giving to you. And that is such a specificity that really dials up, uh, his magnanimity yeah. like and again like that could be portrayed in a way that is hostile like yeah. that sort of hostile love yeah especially from an older person yeah there's something about the mix of philip baker hall and these other actors and the way he reads a line yeah that just works yeah yeah and he does that i mean it would become 
a hallmark of PTA. Uh, he has an interesting melody to his dialogue. Yeah. Uh, that's almost musical at times. Yeah. And the Coen brothers kind of have that sometimes. Yeah. Well, they will repeat things or, and it would become a hallmark in PTA's work, but uh, he, like, Sydney will say something and then say, like, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Right. And reiterate things. And yeah. it's just very lyrical. It's interesting. I do this not because of this, but yeah. because of this. Yeah. It's really, it, it's not a very naturalistic way to write. No. And it would clang, I feel like, in another actor or in another movie. Yeah. And it yeah. really works it here. It fucking works, man. Yeah. And and he early on t- was just with his uh, insert shots that he would become known for. Yeah. Uh, they just, I don't know, man, there's, they add so much just to see a close up of the cup of coffee and the cigarette butts and the ashtray on the table in the diner just instructs of where we are so well. This is a look that he would carry forward for his entire career. Yeah. Those three shots to establish a scene. Yeah. he does. And then we're in three. on the characters and that rule, he sort of has his own private rule of threes to uh-huh. establish a scene that I've come to just really love and appreciate. Yeah, it is always three, isn't it? Yeah. Three little insert shots. Also, I don't know how you feel about diners, but this is a great yeah. diner movie. It's a, one of the great diner movies. There are a couple of great diners in <laughs> Seattle, and I think yeah. the reason I love diners is Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Those, those old brown uh, hourglass mugs. Uh-huh. Uh, a, like you can't smoke in diners in Seattle anymore, but right. the, but like the vinyl booth, yeah, against a window, yeah, and these guys that never go in there to eat anything, yeah, it's like it's always a cup of coffee and some cigarettes and like maybe a piece of pie or something. This film tells you fairly early on that like that PTA is a director with style, but he is not stylish. Yeah, like that that cut in the car when John C. Riley moves to the front seat. Yeah. Like that's flashy for another director, right. but it's just style for PTA. Yeah, yeah. And I love that a ton. And there are some flourishes in this film that are like that. Yeah. Like it's letting you know that there's someone who's who uh-huh. who's like thinking more about this stuff than usual. Yeah. But he's not throwing it in your face. Yeah, and he also does that other thing too that I notice in all his films where he'll have the dialogue and the score ramping up in a crescendo yeah. uh, of intensity. Like the way they're speaking, it matches the music. And it's really like, I'm sure other people have done that, but it feels like such a Paul Thomas Anderson thing. He really has a command of a score's relationship to the film. And like, there's never been a more incestuous relationship than the one in magnolia where they're like playing off of each other but later on when he's doing films like Uh, there will be blood the score to that film is almost an anti-score yeah oh yeah where it's almost a feeling instead of music yeah and that is something that i feel like he's really doubled down on yeah in his films lately and it and it gives you such a feeling of discomfort oh yeah in in moments where you should feel that way Uh uh-huh I think he really is onto something there. And yeah. Clementine's Clementine's uh bells I think is the first instance of that. Like when this film opens, <clears throat> that drone yeah informs the rest of his career. Yep. In that way. Yeah. Because there is something skin crawly about how that plays out. Yeah. And then it'll do something like punch drunk which uh, the music in that movie is yeah. is like so key as well, but so different right. than other things. And he usually works with the great John Bryan. 
Yeah. Uh, we need to shout him out. Of Absolutely. Course. Yeah. He's and Amy Mann is such a big part of, yeah. of, his, of his films also. Amy Mann, who I just saw like uh, 20 minutes ago. The greatest. She's I love Max Mac- Funko. Yeah, she's here at Max Fun. Yeah. Amy Mann and fucking Ted Leo. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Um, I love how, uh, this is just a little funny side note, but how when John C. Riley tells the story about the matchbook that caught fire in his pocket, he's telling the story that he just thinks is so great and how little fucking time Sydney has for it. He lets him get through the story, but it's not like, oh my God, really? I mean, there's zero comment on it. He's just like, okay. Well. It's the idiosyncrasy <laughs> of a dope. Yeah. Like, I don't use matches guy yeah. is the guy who is substituting an idiosyncrasy for a, a, like having a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the wrong hands, like that's dopey and dumb, but the cutaway gets me every time. Yeah. It's so much fun. Oh, it is. That one cutaway where it's "Ah," it's like, P.T. Anderson did do a lot of visual gags. So like for him to do that. But in fairly quick succession, he does the move to the front seat and the match gag. Yeah, that's true. And then he doesn't fuck around with with cut comedy for the rest of the film, which I think is good. Like it's restrained. Yeah. Uh, I thought the other interesting thing about the character of Sidney is, is there's um, how he simultaneously has menace and kindness. Yeah. And you don't know, you're sort of uncomfortable as a viewer because you get the feeling when John C. Riley at the very beginning sort of hitches his train to him. It's like, this guy's being nothing but kind. So why does it feel like he's making a deal with the devil? Yeah. And that is, I think this is a way that I feel quite a bit. Like I'm immediately suspicious of kindness uh-huh. if it's coming from someone that I don't know. Yeah. And this is a way that this film makes you feel uncomfortable from the start. Yeah. And I think it's great that you see every part of the spectrum to Sydney in this film. Uh-huh. You see him benevolent in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You see him scared when Jimmy pulls a gun on him. That's one of the most fucked up parts of this movie. Yeah. Because you have seen him in nothing but complete control. Yeah. And when he's fucking scared, it's like hard to watch. It is because he feels like your dad. Oh God. Yeah. He totally pivots into some, into a character you want to care for. Yeah, man. Even though for the first hour he's been taking care of you and the characters that you like. Yeah. That's why it's so hard to watch. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then when he flips the switch and suddenly he's the guy waiting in the dark for oh, Jimmy, yeah. he he is a f- like fully shaded character. He contains yeah. the entire spectrum. Yeah, I mean, you see a, a role like this and you're like, all right, he could have easily won a Best Actor award yeah. for this. Yeah. But, I mean, the whole film was ignored, I think. I mean, yeah. it made so little splash. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert Ridgely's in it too. Speaking of in the company, so great. Who, Just a and, little bit part. Yep, and who he and Boogie Nights was a guy who. Uh, yeah. Emily and I. The quote, Colonel. Yeah, the Colonel. Emily and I quote all the time. Yeah. One of the things that we uh, movie lines that we use on each other a lot is when someone says something obvious, we'll go, "Oh, you think so, Doctor?" Me too. <laughs> the same, and no one gets it. It's like a oh, little thing for me. Guys. Oh, yeah. you think so, Doctor? Yeah. <laughs> we say that all the fucking time. So great. So great. And it's funny, early on in the movie when Sydney tells John, it's a really good good line, uh, never ignore another man's courtesy. And I just, because of his voice, I wanted that to be followed with, I like simple things, like yeah. lollipop in my mouth and butter in my ass. <laughs> I love the idea of taking a legacy actor like him and putting those words in his mouth. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> 
I can't wait to talk about Boogie Nights. Oh yeah, same. but uh, Hard Day is such an important and great film. Yeah, and it's not just a you should really see where Paul Thomas Anderson came from, like throw it into your mix. Yeah. It is on its own and legitimately a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. And Sam Jackson, like this is one of my favorite Sam Jacksons, uh, sort of echoes the Jackie Brown. Like he does the, when he does the small time hood thing. Yeah. Not even Jules. Like Jules is even a little too polished. Right. There's something about this level, like the security guard uh, guy who turns out has... Some compromising information on He's Sydney. legitimately dangerous. And I think a scene that's so instructive about his, like, where he is in his head is that he takes the money and he gambles it. Yeah. He doesn't use it to better himself in any way. He uses it to play craps. Yeah. And you know everything you need to know about Jimmy in that moment. Uh-huh. Like, not only does he have the balls to hold up Sydney. Mm-hmm which takes incredible balls. Yeah. But that he would just blow it at a craps table. Yeah. Betting the hard way. Right. Yeah, yeah. Taking the hard eight. Yeah. Uh, was that a stolen shot? Was that Steadicam shot? A stolen shot? I mean... Where they go through the casino like that? In the commentary track for this film, uh-huh. Paul Thomas Anderson says, you would have to be fucking crazy to do any sort of film in a casino. And... Like, that he does it, and he pulls it off, and he does long tracking shots there constantly in yeah. this film. I think might be like a flex that he's doing. So these those were all extras, and that was all yeah. blocked and set up? Yeah. Wow. Because it felt like, and I knew that I knew it had to have been pretty small budget. I was like, did he just fucking, like, sneak a camera in and steal the shot? There's such a it's look really to Dumpy Casino yeah. that evokes such a feeling... Oh, yeah. You know? Like the the downtown casino. The and one, you like, basically open with that feeling, and it informs yeah. everything else. Yeah. Like every dingy hotel room you end up in with Clementine. Yeah. Every scene of gambling. Like, uh-huh. it's just... These aren't the high rollers. It's 60% fun, and the, the other 40% is dark and yeah. menacing. That's Vegas to me, man. Yeah. yeah. That, that underbelly of, like... Yeah. There are the high rollers, but... If you the get out of the lane 90%, a little bit, yeah. yeah, or these guys like the small time Griff just trying to get a room, yeah, or uh, you know the well, we should go ahead and talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah, that guy, one of the most obnoxious hard characters to even watch that I've ever seen in a movie. It's He's magic so what awful. he does, yeah, He's so awful. It's such a fucking dick. There's. I mean, it almost goes without saying what a genius Philip Seymour Hoffman was. Yeah. And I just watched uh, Magnolia at the Cinerama in Seattle. Oh, nice. Recently, they like like they brought it back for a 1999 film festival. Oh, cool. A lot of great movies in 99. Magnolia is one of them. Yeah. And I couldn't help but like, I just got really emotional watching him and yeah, I just really miss him as an actor. He's, yeah, man. he's so incredible and you see him in this scene and he is as hateable as a person could ever be. Yeah. And that he's dead makes you love him in this scene. Yeah. It's such a weird conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way he says fuck when he doesn't hit the hard way. Yeah. 
is I know you've said you don't like a Vegas casino, uh-huh. and I have to admit, I do love a Vegas casino. Uh-huh. I love gambling. <laughs> it's a ton of fun for me. I'd like to go to Vegas with you. That'd be a that good time. is an actor who knows how that word is said in a gambling context. Yeah. Because when you don't hit something, yeah. it is it is shattering. Yeah, it's angry, it's deflated. Do you play craps at all? Uh, I've played craps, yeah. It, craps is... Uh, I never fully understand it. I always just was like, I'm going to learn like four or five bets yeah. and just have fun. Because That's the right way to do it. Fun. When you and I go to Vegas, we'll roll craps. Okay. <laughs> but the thing about craps that I know you know is, is that it's not just about you. Yeah. You feel a sense of responsibility yeah. for everyone when you're with the roller. Especially if you get a little bit hot. And when you're hot for a while yeah. and the money starts flowing to the table uh-huh. and then you crap out... It is. It's. It hurts. Yeah. In an in an almost primal level. Because you've let down everyone. And his fuck in is an example yeah. of that. Like when he releases that, oh, like yeah. you know what a gambler fuck sounds like, and he knew it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the way he's laying into Sydney. Yeah. He feels so bad for Sydney. Yeah. But he's just fucking taking it all on the chin, and he. He bests him in the end. It's the biggest power move you can it's you can the do. The, power the table move. maximum. Yeah, like he did that to fucking knock him down, didn't he? Yeah, and that the Philip Seymour Hoffman character throws a hundred on the hard way. Yeah, because that's his maximum. Right. He made him lose all his money. Yeah, yeah. He oh, drew God. him out and then buried him. That scene was so good. Yeah. Oh man, that scene was good. It gives me chills to talk about. It's it's incredible. Yeah. And it's so emblematic of how great Philip Seymour Hoffman would be throughout his entire career. Yeah. He does so much with very little. Yeah, and I know I've heard P.T. Anderson talk about how much he loved Phil, as he called him. Yeah. And he said that he wrote the part of Magnolia for him. He said because that's as close to Phil as is in real life. Yeah. He's like, he is a sweet, sweet guy. And I always make him play guys like Scotty and Boogie Nights. Yeah. And like this fucking guy. Yeah. And he said, I wanted to give him something where he could be Phil. And that his his nurse character in Magnolia apparently is like as close as it got to, to the to the man. It's such a beautiful film. It is. And uh, uh and like tender. Yeah. Uh very quickly, I do want to mention one of my other favorite little and it's such a instructive like there, there's no throwaway shit in this movie. It's uh, a pretty tight hundred minutes, right? Yeah, it's tight, but like the uh, what what you would think is a throwaway scene with John C. Riley explaining the pay per view scam to Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, but that's so instructive that like this guy, he's always on the make, and he's like, "Oh, here's what you do." Like yeah. I get two TVs in here and I unscrew this and then I plug it into here and like, and yeah, you know, it's, it's cool. You get free movies or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is so quintessentially a dope trying to impress a girl he likes. Yeah. And she's impressed. With anything that he's good at. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if she cares. Yeah. Like he might as well have been like, well, here's my bubblegum card collection. Yeah. And I think. I think we've all felt that way before around someone that we like. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to say. Right. Other than the thing that I'm an expert about. Yeah. And that whole scene with Gwyneth and him in that hotel room, I think, is so sweet because, like... Oh, that part, yeah. Like, 
Gwyneth Paltrow in a tank top in his bed yeah. is chaste. Yeah. Even though she is a sex worker. Uh-huh. Like there's something so pure about their relationship in that moment. Yeah. It's really sweet. It's like two kids. Yeah. Who never had a chance to be kids like that, probably. Yeah. Um, the scene I thought you were referencing, which we may as well talk about the the scene with yeah. when uh, when she there's has another a, hotel room that they end up yeah in. when she yeah. has a John uh, that um, rips her off and they call Sydney and it's not revealed what's in the room yeah like he won't let him in first of all he's on the other side of the door yeah like, just let me in one of the long tracking shots in the film is following Sydney yeah. out of his car up the, up stairs, the stairs of the motel into the room and there's so much fucking tension yeah as a viewer and it had been so long since I saw it I couldn't even fully remember what had gone on in there yeah and he refuses to turn that camera around for so long and you're just going like what the fuck is in there it's such great restraint oh my god because you know you have a set piece there like the bloody guy in a bed yeah like that is a story yep and to withhold that from us for for as long long as it's done it's really great. As a kid filmmaker, it's like, again, just amazed at the maturity yeah. and the restraint that this this kid had at yeah. such a young age. Yeah. Unbelievable. That entire scene, uh, it's Gwyneth Paltrow with her face in her hands the entire time. She's acting inside yeah. a bowl made out of her hands. Yeah. God, that it, scene was rough. Like, the knowledge that you know Jimmy has been there before. Yep that is paid off later is also so crucial. Yeah. And the spectrum that Sidney goes through in that scene, he runs yeah. the whole gamut. He is He's a disappointed scared father. Scared and angry yep. and and mad dad. Yep. Yeah, god that scene is tough. Cuz cuz John C Riley is so dumb and desperate. Yeah. And he slaps Clementine. Yeah. And like it's just it's all so hard to watch. Yeah. They're so fucking dumb and yeah. and and clementine is so upset she's doing that it's so real though she's doing that thing where she's so upset the, but refuses to be smart about what the reality is the cruelest thing that sydney says in the entire film is about like the first lesson in sex worker university yeah, is get the money, get up, the money front. up front oof first thing to teach you at hooker school yeah yeah, that line is fucking tough. Cause... And it's so withering because he's mm. the papa of the whole thing. And that's the that's the moment he allows himself to go dark. Yeah. Yeah, and then you realize they got married. Yeah. <laughs> Clementine <laughs> and John get got married. And uh, it's so much uh it's so much sour followed by sugar too, because what happens in the scene after that? Uh Sydney has ostensibly fixed it. And mm-hmm. he's telling them to go to Niagara Falls. Right. And then he does that refrain again. Which the, John C. Riley didn't want to go to because he's been there before. <laughs> that's great. Like the resistance that he puts up to, to yeah. that idea is like and so it's dumb. It's like, dude, fucking are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. But Sydney does the thing again. He's like, I'm giving you everything that I have. Yes. And if you ask, I will give you even more when you need it. Yeah. And, and it's like, do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah. I'm get willing to give you everything that I have. Yeah. So powerful. It really is. It really is. And I don't know whether, like, maybe it's just like a cynicism of modern times, 
But in the late 90s, I never felt cynical. Like the first time I saw this film, I never didn't trust him. Yeah. I never didn't think that he would come through mm-hmm. if you were to ask him. But I feel like if you made this movie today, yeah, I think you would always be on guard against that kind of promise from a main character in yeah. a context like this. Yeah, I mean, he kind of even threatens that a little bit. Like, n- no, um, yeah. this is too much. Yeah, You guys have fucked us up. But you know that he's not going to leave them. Yeah. Uh, because they're his two surrogate kids. Yeah. He throw. I mean, he, there's an air of confidence in how he handles everything. Yeah. And like when he throws that gun down the sewer, like, you know, he's done that before. Yeah. And knows exactly what to do. Yeah. Next. And then, you know, at an hour and 20 minutes into the film, you get the big reveal, uh, that, that he has, is, has killed John's father. Yeah. And you know, it's something, yeah. but you kind of forget about it for a little while. And then you're reminded, oh, right, Sydney was a fucking bad guy. Yeah. And that, and he's responsible for this kid. Just the way Jimmy puts it, like he says so much without saying anything at all. Like, I know people yeah. out there yeah. who told me about you. Yeah. And I don't think the film is specific in any way about what Sydney did out there. Right. Other than killing John's father. Yeah, you don't know what went but down or why. It went you don't down. know to what degree he is connected. Yes, and it doesn't matter because a because a person like Jimmy makes it so menacing. Yeah, that you don't need to know any more than that. Well, he ends up in Reno. That's instructive for a character. Things have gone bad if you're in Reno. Yeah, like living in Reno. Yeah, driving a. Crown Victoria. It's interesting how little Reno is as a character in this film, and Vegas too. Yeah, you really get it on a micro level. Like yeah. you're not, you're never seeing territorial Vegas or Reno shots. Yeah, for sure. You're only in the shitty casino. Uh-huh. You're only in the cars. Yeah. You're only in the hotel rooms. Yeah, you're right. And that could be a function of budget. Right. But I think it's more intentional than that. Yeah. I really think effect. it's about it's. Uh, there's a little bit of claustrophobia. Yeah. Yeah, but from the moment Jimmy. From the moment Jimmy says that, his fate is sealed. And it's because Sydney is scared by it. Yeah. That you're told that you should be scared about this too. Right. And Sydney knows that he has to kill him. Yeah. Like that's the only way around this. He's so desperate for John to not know this. Yeah. Like you really feel that. Yeah. Uh, like with every ounce of your being as a viewer of how important it is that John not find this out. Uh, Sydney has, has been the, he's been the captain of every conversation he's been a part of. Yeah. Except with Jimmy. Yeah. Where he is led around by his nose. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Every character in the movie is, um, wants Sydney's approval. Yeah. Even Jimmy. Cause remember there's that point toward the end where Jimmy wants Sydney's approval even. Yeah. Talking about being the inside guard and that he's. Yeah, he calls he knows, back the parking lot attendant. Yeah, because he knows that Sydney thinks he's fucking yeah. a low life. Yeah. And he wants his approval. Yeah. It angers him. You can tell that's one reason he's doing this. He's pissed off initially that the gun got thrown away, but then he's like trying to impress him again. I've got plenty more guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a weird thing. Yeah. It's like Sydney just has that gravitas. Yeah. That like everyone wants to be uh get his approval there's something really aspirational about his character and i mean that sincerely like like an old person who is as grounded in his own character as he is yeah 
who is kind, legitimately kind. Yeah. And especially like, and I've always felt this way, like I'm not friends with people who are unkind to people who work in restaurants right. or who work in retail. Mm-hmm. He's that guy. He's mm-hmm. the guy you aspire to be who yeah. is who is a good person to people in service right. and industry jobs. Yeah. And that informs a lot about his character yeah. to, to you as a viewer. Yeah, because he has that conversation, that great conversation with Clementine early on. Yeah. When he talks about, you know... What would happen if you weren't so nice? Yeah, and he makes it very clear where he stands. Like, yeah. you don't have to do that with me. You know what, Loki, my favorite... One of my favorite scenes in this film is that when someone else calls him Captain... Yeah. And he says... That is Clementine's yeah, <laughs> name for me. Yeah. I love that moment. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's like that's that's what my daughter calls me, yeah. basically. That's reserved. Well, you know, we find out that he has is responsible for this and now it all sort of makes sense on why you felt this menace from someone who is really nothing but kind. Yeah. Throughout he's capable the film. of more. Yes, he's capable of much, much more. And John's dad is just the tip of the iceberg, you get the feeling. You know, do you think it's best that we never know him? I, I kind of so. do. Yeah, I feel like you are you're able to understand what he might be like through mm-hmm. John, and that's all you need. Yeah, because you would lose. It's weird. Like a magic trick of this film is, even once you find out about John, you still have sympathy for him. Yeah, like oh, it's probably something he didn't even want to do. Maybe he had to do it. Yeah. And if you knew more and let's say you found out that that Sydney was a fucking cleaner or just, you know, yeah. someone for the mob who took out motherfuckers yeah. left and right, you probably would lose some respect for him. Right. But you still because you don't know and and he doles out such little information, you're still able to retain this like sympathy for this guy. Yeah. Who ended up in Reno trying to take care of the kid whose daddy killed. He is a really special character. Yeah. In all of movies, I think he's unique. Yeah, which is why it should have been called Sydney. Agreed. Such a character study. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. You know? Uh, and then, you know, boy, he fucking takes Jimmy out like a fucking boss. Like, pro. <laughs> Goes I over, lo- sits in that goddamn chair with a, with, with Jimmy's gun. Yeah. You know, like he knows exactly what he's doing. There's a moment of vanity in that scene that is so subtle where Sidney sits in the chair and he's got the he's got the gun. Yeah. And he kind of considers how he looks in the chair. Yeah. Do you notice that part? Yeah. Where yeah. he like he sort of like practices aiming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that is that's really cool too. Yeah. Because this may have been something that he did a long time ago. And right. he just needs to get used to the idea again. Yeah. Right, it's probably been a long time. Really fun. Since he shot a guy. Yeah, and that's Melora Walters as the girl that Jimmy brings home right. after that after that night playing craps. Yeah. And she plays such a little part in this uh-huh. film, and it's a real like blink-if-you're-miss-her moment. Yeah. But, God, she would go on to do great things. I'm such a huge fan of hers. Yeah, she's great. And I love in that scene, um, never for a second do you think that he's going to kill her. No. You know he's going to let her go. Because he's been around the block and he knows... Sydney's got a code. He's got a code, but he also knows, like, it, she's not a threat to him. She's not going to tell. She's not going to tell. She's yeah. not going to go to the fucking cops yeah. and say, you know, this low-life security guard got killed. She just wants to go home. What do you make of Sydney very specifically shooting him in the dick? 
Oh, he did. Because he? he double taps the chest and then he does go down to the dick. Oh, is that what he does? Yeah. I don't think I caught that. I mean, you could read it as the body falls, but he I, shoots him in the dick. I think if you <laughs> I feel like he shoots him in the dick. I don't know. Maybe that's uh it well it could be interpreted a couple of ways. Maybe that's his signature move. If he was a That's hit the man, Sydney. That's the Sydney. <laughs> Two in the head, one in the dick. Yeah. Uh, or just his utter disgust for this guy, yeah, and and little so little regard that he he neuters him. You know, we talked a lot about like the sound in this film and Clementine's bells being a part of it, but the leather sound that Jimmy comes with, yeah, is such a menacing thing. Yeah, yeah. he's always wearing those gloves; they're uh-huh. always squeaking. Yeah, he's always wearing that jacket. Uh huh. When he enters the room and gets shot by Sydney, like. You can hear him move. Yeah. There's that sound of that leather to him. Like yeah, it's yeah. there's a lot going on there. When uh-huh. you when you sketch out a character, it's how he looks, how he talks, but also how he sounds. Yeah. Yeah, and Sydney just owns him. Yeah. The whole fucking time. Even yeah. when he I mean, there is that, that one break where Sydney is scared when yeah. he has the gun on him. It's hard you to could watch, make but... you could write the film paper that he is not, and that's and that's he's playing. And he's, I kind of wondered that because it's so out of character. Yeah, I wondered is he giving him like all right? I'm gonna let him have the power right now and think that he's got me. The way I've always that read it, it is dude. that those were legitimate fears that he was displaying. Oh, really? But I could definitely read it the other way for sure. Yeah, because he's fucking. He's way never not in control. Jimmy, yeah, and he's always one step ahead. I love how they drive the car to the turnaround in the casino right after that scene. Oh, yeah, Like, yeah. They, they drive it 50 <laughs> feet into the turnaround and get out, and then they go to Sydney's apartment to get the cash. Right. <laughs> and Sydney too, won't stop uh, smoking in the car, too, which is another power move. That is so great. Yeah, A gun to him. Out. Yeah. yeah. He's like, no, <laughs> I'm not doing it. So much fun. Yeah, man. Such a great movie. Uh, it is really great. That last shot, you know, um in the in the cat in the diner again with that just that blood on his sleeve. Back to one. Yep, back to one. And he pulls his his suit jacket down to cover the blood on his shirt sleeve. So great. Such a great way to end that movie. I agree. It's really special. Yeah. It's like for a film that is punctuated by the sort of violence that it has, yeah, it is so quiet and small most of the time. Yeah, and it is really about our core characters yep, and what so they're going study. through. Uh huh. And it's so mature for a young filmmaker. Yeah, it's just really special. Yeah, I can't wait till we get into Magnolia because I just am now recalling uh william h macy's character in that it's movie. a distillation of these themes yeah like can you make it even more concentrated right and bigger somehow yeah and that's what magnolia does the hard eight is a great an- a great answer to the question like what's a film that i haven't seen before that i should right this is frequently my answer to that question yeah for sure yeah and two uh jimmy gator is mentioned in this movie yeah floyd gondoli too all right who's floyd gondoli floyd is it, Floyd is the Philip Baker Hall character in Boogie Nights. Oh, okay. The guy who who wants to meet, Jimmy Gator meet boys, Magnolia. meet girls. They're about to shoot to videotape. Right, right, right. <laughs> and but he's Jimmy uh, and Gator it's and the Magnolia, Colonel. Right? What's that? But he's Jimmy Gator in Magnolia, right? Isn't yeah, that his character's yeah, name? yeah. As the host of the of uh, of the kids show of yeah, the trivia show. Interesting. So he just yeah. brings back those character names. Yeah, 
Yeah, which is fun. <laughs> it, it's fun that there's like a like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There is a Paul Thomas Anderson right. Cinematic Universe. Yeah, God, he's a guy that you just wonder what he's going to do next. He's on a very short list for me where uh, wherever, whenever, like it doesn't matter what the film is, I'm going to go see it opening night. Well, he did these films that uh, kind of have uh, a similar vibe, like Magnolia and Boogie Nights and Hard Eight, I think. They're certainly not the same film. Yeah. But when he, he really took a turn when he started doing things like There Will Be Blood and The Master yeah, is when... Punch Drunk Love aside, yeah, uh, which I've already covered on the show, but you and I should talk about it anyway. Agreed. Um, man, just what what is he? What's he going to do next? I always want to know. Can't wait. And as we've mentioned, he's a young guy. I hope we have forty yeah. more years of great films from him. Yeah, and he doesn't do one of those things where he's like, oh, "I'm going to retire. I've made my eight films." He seems like, and this is like his story, he's someone who like his dad bought him the video camera when he was eight. Like he's someone who's in it for the love of it. And that's what makes me confident that he will keep creating as long as he wants to. And it makes me grateful for it because he's, he's a filmmaker. He's doing it for the right reason. Right. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. All right, dude. Well, let's, uh, since this is your first appearance, let's do the five questions. Oh, I did not prepare for five questions. So what's it going to be? Did we do this? Did we do this last year? I don't remember. Uh, I think in in a in a friendly fire context we did, but I've never been put on the spot. All right, well let's let's do like it this. again. What's yeah. the uh, what's the first movie you saw in a theater? 
the first movie that I can remember that seeing a, in a theater a of, yeah. was the Keaton Batman. Mm. And I remember uh, going to that film with my dad. And correct me if I'm wrong, but was that PG-13? I feel like it was PG-13. I don't know. I remember that being a thing. Uh-huh. And me being younger than 13 was sort of like a, I feel like my dad was doing the cool dad thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, Straight. hey, sure. this is this is going to be fun. You're going with your dad to see the Keaton Batman, right. and it may be a little deeper of a pool than you're used to. Right. And it was so much fun. Yeah. And, like, that was, I think that was the first time. The first, like, I know I saw films in theaters younger. I'm fairly confident my parents took me to see E.T., for example. Right. But, like... The idea that my mind could be fully formed in a way to like really appreciate a film yeah. in a theater and get it, yeah, in a in a sophisticated way, that was the one that sticks out to me as like very formative. Right. All right. Uh, first R-rated movie, Speed, and I snuck into it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember the movie that I bought a ticket to, uh-huh. but I very clearly went with a group of friends and then snuck out of the theater and into Speed. Yeah, I saw that again within the last couple of years and was like, I, I kind of enjoyed watching it. Does it hold up? I haven't seen it in a long time. It's a pretty fun movie. Yeah, I bet it is. I like Keanu Reeves. Yeah. I'll just watch him and whatever now. He was a lot of fun in that movie. Yeah. Dennis Hopper was great. It was good. Yeah. It was a fun movie. Shoot the hostage. Uh, oh, that's right. Um, number three, will you walk out of a bad movie? Um, do you have a story? I have... I think I told this on the Friendly Fire show, which was uh, Chris Farley's last movie. Right. Was the only film I've ever walked out of. Remember that now, because it was sad. Yeah, like, you could... The the struggle was suggested for a while up until then, and I had been such a fan up to that point. I remain a fan, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, like, I always, like, even his last SNL appearance was really hard to yeah. watch. But that last film, he was so, like, he was so shattered in it and was so clearly just hanging on Yeah, that I, like, I didn't want to ever, like, you could see his death coming in that film. Yeah. And I did not want to remember him that way. Right. And I left the movie fairly early. Like I, like maybe at the 30 or 40 minute mark, I couldn't, I just didn't want to yeah. see him like that. I wanted to remember all the things I loved about him. Yeah. That's and great. I think that was a, a self-defense mechanism that served me because I have not gone back to that movie and I sure. won't. No. Like I want to remember the good times with him. Yeah. When you guys were pals. I mean, that's, it. You, it's said all the time, like your favorite SNL cast is the one you went to high school with. And oh, interesting. He I've was never in, heard that. He was in my cast. Like that's, yeah. that's when it started. And he, I was his and he was mine for, yeah. for the entire way. Um, number four, I tailored to the guests and I'm going to go with, uh, maybe, uh, What film, as a as a director, do you most wish you could have... I, I usually say, what film do you most wish you could have made? But I'll change that up and say, what film do you most wish you could have 
worked on and been there while it was happening. You're not the director, but like you were there when they made Raiders or something. Wow. That's a really fun question. Shoot. You know, a uh, a film I watch from time to time that I, I think very few people know about or talk about is Forrest Whitaker's Ghost Dog, the Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah, fucking love Ghost Dog. I would really have loved to have seen that interaction between yeah. Forrest Whitaker and Jim Jarmusch. Jarmusch and like to see where that character came from and yeah. where the tension was between direction and action. Uh-huh. The way of the samurai. That's the first thing that comes to mind. There are probably a sure. hundred films that I would feel no, that way that's about. That's a good answer, though. That's the first one that comes to mind because that is so much fun and such an example of the film that could have gone into the ditch and had been yeah. like, shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, like something to laugh at. Yeah. But that is not a funny movie other than the moments where it's intentionally funny. Right. And I think that is a great command <laughs> of, oh, I love of that man. genre. I'd yeah. love to see him at work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then finally, number five, what uh, what's your movie going routine? Uh, I, like the late 90s were the salad days for me where I would go see three films a week in the smallest theater in Seattle and like cut out of college and go watch them. Because if I remember correctly, you hate when people talk to you in a movie, right? Anymore, I try not to see a film on opening weekend, right. and I try to go like four weeks later in yeah. a smaller theater where I can sit in the back and like really be undisturbed. So you just want know. it to yourself. I, th- I want to believe I'm not a crank, right? But the way I describe myself says crank, right? Like I just want to be left alone in a theater that I'm in by myself. Well, maybe you're a movie crank, but you're not a yeah. life crank. Yeah, and like that's the way I like to see a film. I just want to, I want to be left alone, and and like I really still sincerely believe in the power of a movie. Yeah, and I like giving myself entirely to it. Right. In a full, like every sense experience kind of way yeah like i don't want to be talked to Mm -hmm. i don't want to hear the crinkling of someone's candy right i don't want someone farting or shitting in the theater (laughs) like all of the senses like Uh, i just want like i want to give myself over to it and i think my favorite film experiences have been the kind where where that's successful where i can get inside it that's great yeah thanks man i love this this is a lot of fun yeah well uh we'll hook up over the uh, the airwaves remotely. Yeah. And we'll do Boogie Nights next. This is going to be a great project. It is. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Chuck. All right, movie crushers. I hope you like that one as much as I did. And boy, we're, we're going to just make this into a filmmaker series because... Not a ton of people I feel like I could record remotely with and have it be just as good as being in person. But uh, Adam and I definitely are are friends enough to where we can record remotely. So that's what we're going to do. He's set up there in Seattle. We're going to keep it rolling with uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And uh, I think we may even do Punch Drunk Love, even though that has already been done uh, at our live Sketchfest show with Tony Hale a couple of years ago. Enjoyed that, but I think we need to stay true to the Filmmaker series and cover them all. So we're going to get going with P.T. Anderson. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Adam. 
Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Cut for Time. That is the at symbol C U T F O R T I M E, which is kind of a funny joke now that I think of it. Adam uh, Cut for Time would be a good nickname for him. So uh, check him out there, or you can uh, follow the Friendly Fire podcast on Facebook. It's wonderful. Those guys are all my buds, and it's a podcast I listen to every week myself. So if you're into movies, especially war movies, go check out Friendly Fire on the awesome, awesome Max Fun Network. So that is it for me, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this cabin session, and uh, we'll see you next week. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.